Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. So we're coming to the end, y'all, of Deuteronomy. So we've been talking a lot about the motives of the Deuteronomist, the Deuteronomist who's concerned with a revolution that's supposed to happen in Israel, a religious revival of sorts. Yet, if you listen to people like Micha Goodman, the Deuteronomist kind of takes God out of the temple and puts God in heaven, like kind of God pulls back, uh, and lot a lot less focus on sacrifice, a lot less focus on um, those rituals, unless they include everybody. So the sacrifices that include everybody eating it, those sacrifices are talked about in Deuteronomy. So it's very clear that it's about gathering. It's less about the priests. It's less about affecting kapara, atonement. It's less about all that for the Deuteronomist. The Deuteronomist is very concerned about the judiciary, very concerned that there be judges who are fair and unbiased, very concerned about the power of the king, very concerned that the king not have so much power um, that it abrogates in some way the importance of the legislation. Am I correct, Senator? Correct. Right? Legislation. For the Deuteronomist, the legislation is key. Everyone is subject, including the king, to the law. To legislation, right? To the law. We'll see how that works out, says Senator Ben Allen. We'll see how that works out. So Deuteronomy is saying, see that it does. See that it does. Because if not, what's going to happen? Really bad stuff, right? Last week, we got a very clear description by the Deuteronomist of what would happen. Everything that happened to Egypt and worse. Things that they didn't never hear of are going to happen to y'all. And you saw, you saw what happened, what I did to them. Well, if you are given this incredible gift and this opportunity and you don't have it work out and you don't have following the law be what is most important for your society, then you are kicked out of the land and what will happen to you will be even worse than what I did to the Egyptians. Because what is what does Deuteronomy keep telling us, essentially, says people like Micha Goodman, you are no different, essentially, than the Egyptians. You're, you're no different. You're just as human as they were. They screwed it up by making power and wealth and the focus on huge monuments to Pharaoh and his afterlife success. You know, like that. they put everything into that, the Book of the Dead, focusing on death, gold, huge monuments. They messed it up by oppressing, right? A, a tiny class oppressing all the others. Don't you do that, Israelites. You've been given the legislation to build a just and equitable democratic society. Don't mess it up. So now that we've been hearing this week after week on all kinds of levels in all kinds of detail. Now we're going a little bit back to kind of the big picture as we start to come to the end. After this, Nisavim Vayelech is, of course, the poem Ha'azinu which, uh, and Bezotah Bracha. So Bezotah Bracha is read at, what? When is Bezotah Bracha, the last Parsha read? Oh, my people. So it's read at Simchat Torah. 
the end of Sukkot is Simchat Torah. That is where we close the book of Deuteronomy and begin Genesis. But usually we're not together on Simchat Torah to study it. So we don't usually study Bezot HaBrachah. So this, this and Ha'azinu are the last things that we study on the lectionary, on the weekly uh, reading of the Parsha. Because the last one is saved for the holiday of Simchat Torah. All right. So Moshe goes and speaks all these things to Israel, to Israel. I am a hundred and twenty today. See, Sarah, you're a spring chicken. At ninety-six, you're a spring chicken. Moshe says, I'm now a hundred and twenty years old. I can no longer be active. I can no longer latsate velavo. I can no longer go out and come in. Like I, I can't, I can't do all this Michigas anymore, right? And God has said to me, "You shall not cross the Jordan." So you know, different years. I feel differently about this stuff. I feel a little bad for Moshe this year again. I'm in one of those periods of feeling really bad for Moshe. Um, it is indeed. Adonai, your God, who will cross before you and who will wipe out those nations from your path and you shall dispossess them. Joshua is the one who shall cross before you as Yudhei has spoken. God will do to them as, as was done to Sihon and Og, kings of the Amorites and to their countries when God wiped them out. Yudhei will deliver them up to you and you shall deal with them in full accordance with the instruction, right, that I have enjoined upon you. Be strong and resolute. Uh, be strong and amats and strong, right? Be really strong and be not in fear or dread for it is indeed who marches with you. God will not fail you or forsake you. Then Moses called Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Chazak ve'amatz, be strong. You're going to need it. For it is you who shall go with this people, God help you, into the land that Yudhei swore to their fathers to give them. And it is you who shall apportion it to them. And it is indeed Yudhei who will go before you. God will be with you and will not fail you or forsake you. Fear not and be not dismayed. We get fear not a lot in these Verses, right? So it seems about to cross over all of the many enemies that are there that will have to be overcome. You can use this metaphorically uh, right now as we look at our situation. I think it is a perfect metaphor for don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of what looks like it can be overwhelming and insurmountable. You you have to be chazak and you have to be amatz. You have to do the right thing and you have to be strong enough to do it. Period. All right. Uh, Moses wrote down this teaching and gave it to the priests, sons of Levi, who carried the ark of Yudhevafe's covenant and to all the elders of Israel. So we're going to stop here for just a second. So Rabbi Arthur Green in his teaching this week that he sends out to all of us on his list, he asks a very interesting question. He says, who are the elders? Why why does he have a problem with that? They supposedly died. They supposedly died. 
they're new elders. You're about to enter the lands and anyone 20 years old or older when we came out of Egypt is gone. So who are the elders? So it's an interesting insight is that he says that according to Hasidic tradition, according to our spiritual tradition, that there are people who are young, who are wise as older people. So the, the, there are people who may not be 70 years old, but they, they are wise. They are, they are old souls. That is a great way to put it. Yes, Lisa. So they, they are old souls, if you will. And it's those kinds of people and the priests that are needed in order to guard the legislation, right? So you need people who are about keeping the wheels turning and keeping it going and dotting the I's and crossing the T's. Those are the priests, right? Who are going to be about the technology, the spiritual technology of Israel. And you also need Zkenim. You need elders, even when you don't have people who are physically and, and experientially elders. You need the kinds of people, says the Hasidic tradition, according to Rabbi Arthur Green, you need folks who have both the ability to, to understand the law and, and be technologists. Is that a word? Technologists of yeah. the law? Yeah. And you need people who can really understand how to apply the law, right? Who, who understand people's lives and understand social, the social situation and what's happening in the civilization uh, enough to be, um, what we would look to an elder for wise, inspired, mature, responsible, right? About how to, how to apply the law. And that this is certainly, certainly what I think we're looking at today, Bert. Did you have something? Uh, question. It says Hatora Hazot. What he's supposed to write, what Moses is supposed to write down. This, this Torah, is that the book of Deuteronomy? Is the whole Torah? If Deuteronomy is a reconstruction, is he supposed to write the new reconstruction? Are we supposed to write a new reconstruction? Other than that, I have no questions. <laughs> So I was going to say, Bert, would you like to begin answering your question? I have no idea. All right. So the, there is no agreement on what, what is Hatorah Hazot? What exactly is this Torah? Nobody is clear. People want to argue it's just Deuteronomy because presumably they had the other material. This is new. This is Moshe's last set of addresses. So it's new because it's just coming out of the mouth of Moshe. We know it's new because we know it's now written in the time of Josiah under a, a religious revolution, right? So it, in either case, it's new. So a lot of scholars argue for what's meant here is Deuteronomy. Put the new book in with the other stuff. Put what I've just said to you in with the other stuff that's already in the ark. It seems to make sense. Others want to say, no, of course not. God forbid Moshe is talking about the entire Torah. Like, how, how could you cut it up? Like, God gives it all at one time to Moshe on Sinai, including this, which doesn't make a lot of sense because Moshe, it, Moshe's death is recorded. So that makes it a little complicated. Like, if, if, right, Moshe's writing that Moshe died, like, that's kind of weird. Officially canonized? 
it was all five of them. So when it was can, it depends on what stage of canonization you're talking about, right? So Deuteronomy is added to the canon, but the canon, the canon is not set until, until early Talmudic times, right? Rabbi Akiva is still arguing for the Song of Songs to be put into the canon. Saying, and people are saying, how can you want to put that erotic, like, his fruit is hanging over my face stuff in the canon? Like, are you out of your mind? And Rabbi Akiva's like, it's about God and Israel. Yeah. Okay. So, so that stuff's being argued fairly, fairly late. Okay. All right. So we're going to go on to 31. We're going to keep going here. All right. And Moses instructed them as follows. Every seventh year, the year set for remission, right? We've talked about Shemitah at Chag HaSukot. So this is going to be every seventh year when you have Shemitah, when the land rests and you come to Chag HaSukot, you come to the fall harvest festival, which you're not going to have the same level of because it's Shemitah. When all Israel comes to appear before your God in the place that God will choose. So that means when the people come to the temple, when they when they do their pilgrimage festival at Sukkot and bring stuff to the temple, you shall read this teaching, Neged Kol Yisrael Ba'oznehem, against all the people, meaning before all the people in their ears. So it has to be out loud, right? First of all, you can't hand them all a copy because it would be on clay tablets and that would be <laughs> quite a massive production to pull off. Um, so you're going to, Read it exactly, distrib- distributing. You know, can you imagine the guy carrying a bunch of clay tablets like the hand? So, um, so you're going to read it to them, um, right? And already, already, and we take it for granted, but already this is a pretty radical concept of religion in the ancient Near East that the instruction about everything that's supposed to happen, including the cult, is read out loud to the people. Because all cultic systems in the ancient Near East were secret. Only the priests, including in Pharaonic Egypt, only the priests knew the rituals. And in Pharaonic Egypt, we have a text found by archaeologists that says to the priests, you shall not speak of this to your father or to your son. You must keep it private only for you as a priest. You're not allowed to talk about the cult and what happens in the cult. This is already a revolution that you're supposed to read out loud to the people. Amcha, the garbage collectors, the plumbers of Israel, they get to hear what the law is for the priests. They get to hear what the law is for the leaders. They get to hear what the law is for the king so that they can help hold accountable the folks who, because it says so here, everybody has to follow this. So your regular Amcha Israelites get to know what the standards are and the boundaries are around who rules them. That is a revolution in the ancient world. And we certainly need it again. Because what is this saying? What is this? suggesting it suggests that the folks in charge have to be reading this they have to know this they have to know the law 
And then the people get told the law so that they can know what the guys in charge, and it's the guys who are in charge, let's be clear, what the guys in charge are supposed to be doing and following. That is a very different system of power and power sharing and accountability that I think we have we have taken so for granted in this country that now people don't know the law. There are legislators who don't know the law and and don't care. They have an agenda, right? And they want to, and, and, and I know we all do, and we all pick and choose, and we all lean into the law in the ways that supports our position. I know that, that. Torah understands that. What do you think the Talmud is? The Talmud is a bunch of arguing by a bunch of rabbis about what the law means and how do you apply it, right? So it's not that I don't understand we're all supposed to argue from our perspective about how to use the law for our own, how we think it should be implemented. I'm not saying that. I'm saying once you start, once you start being ignorant of the law, and are willing to like willfully disregard it. Like it's not even important. Like you don't even pretend to be using, but it just is. I just think we're living in a time where we have taken for granted for far too long. The fact that this is the system and this is the way the system is supposed to work. Is it you hear the law, you know, the law, and then you as the people hold your leadership accountable to the law. And then we can argue about what it means, right? And, and how it's applied. But you have to start with, here are the rules. So the weight of the law, however, is, they're God's words. That's pretty weighty versus like a constitution that's written by a bunch of men. You know. So, okay. But even if we say it's, it's different in Deuteronomy because it was understood to be the law of God, you still have to fight about how you apply it. So I get what you're saying that the starting point might be like, well, you really got to take this seriously because, you know, it's the big guy. Right. So I I get that. But if we agree that we're going to be governed by laws, which I think all of us agree on and we agree the Constitution is the place we start with that, we can we've always had to fight about how to apply it. Right. And how to adapt it and how to reconstruct it. Deuteronomy is the first obvious attempt by ancient Israel to reconstruct its own legislative agenda. This is an agenda. We've talked about it. We can listen, Senator Allen, the last few weeks. It, this is a very clear agenda by the D school, by the Deuteronomist school. It's a very clear political agenda. There's, there's no, there's no need to apologize for that, right? Unless you need to harmonize it with everything else that all got given on Sinai at the same time, then you have a problem. But because we're not fundamentalists, we don't have that problem. Um, so this is clearly the first reconstruction, but, but to Dana's point, they took it very seriously, right? They, they took this very seriously, so seriously that they put it in the mouth of Moses to give it that authority. So for the Deuteronomist, the agenda is to centralize worship in the temple so that you take the cultic out of the everyday. So you take, you take sacrifice out of the people's daily lives. So the priests become less important because they're not constantly officiating at local shrines and local altars. Before this, you could sacrifice anywhere. Um, but now, now it's centralized in the temple in Jerusalem. 
so so one or you could make the argument that makes it more important but if but if you look at what it practically did it took sacrifice out of their lives that now sacrifice was no longer one of the major um ways that they would have um been involved with their religious tradition right that the sacrifice starts to become n- not a part of their daily life now they can just eat they can kill a cow and eat it like so that that is so that diminishes to, for a lot of scholars say that diminishes the role of the priests also the role of the prophets are on the rise the whole focus on ethics and values that we see all through Deuteronomy fair weights and measures right we get over and over and over and over again taking care of the poor the widow the orphan the slave now you're going to do shabbat for your slaves the way god did it for you taking you out of egypt you're now going to imitate god not by stopping creating that's one explanation that's exodus Deuteronomy, why do we keep Shabbat? So that you do for your slaves what was done for you. It is the great equalizer. Every Shabbat comes a time where your slaves are essentially the same as you. So Mark says labor is the great equalizer. And Torah says, no, it's rest. Rest from labor is the great equalizer. Um, And then what else are we talking about? Limits on the king's power, limits on how many alliances the king can have. So you're not dealing with somebody who becomes an emperor, right? So if the king's ability to take wives and stuff is limited, it means limited ability to make negotiation, negotiated treaties and deals. Gold horses, meaning not too big an army. So that, so that it's very clear that the king in Israel will not be an emperor. The king will be, what did we, what is it called in Deuteronomy? Was it Deuteronomist called the king? Achiha. Your brother, meaning you are equals. He is raised in status and in access to power, but you are achim. You are brothers. There's, this, is, this is not the divine right of kings kind of understanding of you were born royal. There is a dynasty that, that does happen, but it's, I think it's a political thing rather than the, the essential view of, Deuter- of Deuteronomy and this revolution is it's your brother. He's just like you. And has to follow the law, just like you. All right. Versus the king being a god. Versus the king being a god, which is what you see in Pharaonic Egypt and what you see all through the ancient Near East. P.S. The king in in the ancient Near East is the high priest. Right? So there is a definite um, balance of powers that that Torah is very aware of, that the high priest is not the king. Although Solomon did, I think. But for the most part, that's how it's supposed to be. All right. Blah, 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 blah. So you are supposed to read this revolution every seven years. So everybody hears it. Everybody knows it. Gather the people. Hakel. You see this verb in Hebrew? The beginning of verse 12. Hakel. Kahal. Kehilah. This is the verb form. Congregate at Ha'am. Congregate the people. And of course, the rabbis are going to take that word and run with it. You know, that that means none of this can happen unless the people are a kahal. If the people are not a kehilah, none of this can happen. So the rabbis take this verse very seriously. So what do you have to do before any of this can be enacted? You have to have the am, you have to have the people be a kahal. Now let's talk about how you do that. 
how do you turn a bunch of Jews into a, a kahal, a, a congregation, right? A, a, a group. We're still working on it. That's exactly right. Job security. All right. Um, so, and notice, of course, who's, who's here? The Toth, the little ones, and Gercha, and the stranger. This is the Deuteronomist we're dealing with, right? Everybody who's vulnerable is also there to hear the law. So you can't hide from them how you're supposed to be treating them. They are there. They're listening. So you can't pretend they don't matter according to the law. Did you say Gercha? Yes. You're a stranger. Yes. It doesn't mean it could have said Ger. Yes. Gercha implies that the stranger is part. I think the next modifier explains why Asher Bisharecha that is in your that are in your gates. If they're in your gates, they are yours. They are your responsibility. If they're in your gates, if they've come seeking asylum from another country and they're in your cities, they are your responsibility. And they're here. They are gathered with the other folks to make the kahal, to make the congregation of Israel. Just in case it was not clear. Um, so gather them that they may hear and learn to revere Adonai and to observe faithfully every word of this teaching. Their children too, who have not had the experience shall hear and learn to revere your God, yod as long as they live in the land um, that you are about to possess. But, 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 yeah. God said to Moses, I'm very sad for him this year. You are soon to lie with your ancestors. This people will thereupon go astray after the alien gods in their midst and the land that they are about to enter. They will forsake me and break my covenant that I made with them. Can you imagine Moshe hearing this? Like this is, this is what he's told at the end of his life. The whole thing is going to blow up in their faces. Right? Didn't we just pick up the book, the whole Tanakh last week and have David Hartman of Blessed Memory say, this is an indictment of the Jewish people. If it weren't written by Jews, we'd say it was written by anti-Semites. God is saying to Moshe at the end, P.S. They're going to blow it. Just so you know, my anger will flare up against them and I will abandon them and hide my countenance from them. They shall be ready, pray, and many evils and troubles shall before them. And they shall say on that day, surely it is because our God is not in our midst that these evils have befallen us. Yet I will keep my countenance hidden on that day because of all the evil they have done in turning to other gods. And P.S. For me, this rings just as true now as ever, because fill in whatever you want to for gods here. Whatever word you'd pick. Because they have chosen to turn towards what? Money. Fame. Power, control, access, like fill it in. But it is just as true now, right, as as then, that when we choose other things over the law and how to create a just and equitable society, and let's be arguing about that, like how we apply the law to making the the stranger and the widow and the orphan safe, when we when we are arguing about that, great, argue away. 
when you turn all of that energy and attention and your resources towards alien gods, then it's over. Why did God have to tell Moses, right, when he was going to die? Why did he have to break his heart? <laughs> so the question is, why did God have to break Moshe's heart? Moshe's about to die. Leave the guy alone. Why come tell him that all of it is essentially all your whole life of service of 120? Well, he didn't serve that long. But, you know, the part of your life that's been of service at 120, essentially it's useless. You failed to communicate the seriousness of this to these people. They're not going to listen to you. You've just been talking for how long? How many weeks have we been in here studying Deuteronomy? That's all the speech of Moshe, the whole book of Deuteronomy. He's been talking for a long time. The one who is of, you know, thick mouth and can't speak. Don't think that irony is lost on Micha Goodman. Um, yeah, Moshe who says, pick somebody else. I'm not a good speaker speaks for the entire book of Deuteronomy. Um, and so, like, wh- why do that to him? That, that's, that's why I feel really bad for Moshe this year. I do. I feel really bad for Moshe. I think, I mean, the simple message, I mean, the simple answer to your question is because the Deuteronomist needs to tell the Israelites the reason you went into exile, the reason you got beaten up is because you didn't keep the law of Moshe. You didn't keep the law. You put other things before that, and that's why it happened to you. So it's retro, it's retrojected. And so one of the ways to do that is to have God say that to Moshe. So I think that's what gives it authority for the Deuteronomist, for the authors of this text. It gives it, it gives it weight. Those of us who are willingly suspending our disbelief, because we don't believe God said this to Moshe, like, right? We believe this is written by the Deuteronomist. But even, but when I willingly suspend my disbelief as a good English major, I can do that. Um, then I feel really sad that the author chose to have it be said to Moshe by God, right? When I'm coming at it as a scholar, I get it. I get why they would do that. But when I willingly suspend my disbelief and put myself in the story, I feel really bad this year for Moshe. Some years I'm cranky with Moshe, but this this year I feel bad for him. Ah, so, so the therapist asks, might God not be coming from a place of empathy and deep compassion, knowing that Moshe's already experienced this people as abrogating the law and abrogating what was given to them at Sinai? Maybe God is coming to Moshe saying, I, I feel your pain because they're going to, they're going to blow everything I've set up for them. All of it. I get you. Like, I totally get you. Know that we're simpatico, you and me. But even so, you would think God as a good therapist could do conscious use of self and decide not to lay that on Moshe and keep it to God's self. Right? Like, yeah, maybe like I get you, Moshe, because they're doing it to me. I, I've seen it. So I've kind of already experienced what you've experienced because I know it's coming and it breaks my heart. But but really, to lay that on Moshe, it, it's tough because it, you ha- if God is the loving parent, if God is the good therapist, if God, you know, then and the, and the caregiver and caretaker and the more powerful one, couldn't God kind of constrict God's self a little bit 
in this moment and not do this to poor Moshe. But of course, I have to put back on my scholar hat and say, I think it's because the Deuteronomist wants us to take this seriously and listen. Um, cause we still haven't gotten it apparently. Therefore, write down this poem. This is why another place where we feel like, okay, what's being referenced here? Is it Deuteronomy? Is it Ha'azinu that's about to come? The next Parsha is a poem. Write down this poem and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths in order that this poem may be my witness against the people of Israel. When I bring them into the land flowing milk and honey that I promised on oath to their fathers and they eat their fill and grow fat and turn to other gods and serve them, spurning me and breaking my covenant. And the many evils and troubles befall them, then this poem shall confront them as a witness, since it will never be lost from the mouth of their offspring. For I know what plans they are devising even now, before I bring them into the land that I promised on oath. And that day Moshe wrote down this poem and taught it to the Israelites. And God and God charged Yoshua Binun, be strong and resolute, for you shall bring the Israelites into the land that I promised them on oath, and I will be with you. And when Moshe had put down in writing the words of this teaching to the very end, Moses charged the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant, saying, take this book and place it inside beside the Ark of the Covenant of Adonai, your God, and let it remain there as a witness against you. Well, I know how defiant and stiff-necked you are. Even now, while I'm still alive in your midst, you've been defiant toward Yotevafe. How much more when I'm dead? Gather to me all the elders of your tribes and your officials that I may speak all these words to them and that I may call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know when I am dead, you will act wickedly and turn away from the path that I enjoined upon you and that in time to come, misfortune will befall you for having done evil in the sight of God, whom you vexed by your deeds. Then Moshe recited the words of this poem to the very end in the hearing of the whole congregation of Israel. Okay, everybody at home, you still there? Everybody good? You still with me? All right. Don't worry. Rabbi Aaron Lieb Smokler is going to help us out here. She's going to help us. Any comments from home? The peanut gallery. Barry's giving a thumbs up. Love that. Israel's in the house. Jamie. Potentially that God didn't want Moses to be a part of the people that failed him. So he separated him and had him die before, you know, he put all that work in. And so I'm just, you know, thought of it and, and maybe that's he's, if you want to feel a little better about it, doing him a favor and, and not letting him be someone that failed God and failed, you know, part of the people that, that will then do. But it. they have, but they haven't done it yet. But he knows they're going to do it. So he's not, so, but he's tells him and he knows he's going to do it. Well, I tell him. I'm going to leave to say it. That man has spent his whole life wrestling with people. Why? Tell him before he dies that they're going to screw it all up. Yeah. I mean, double-edged sword. Yeah. Right? No one's better than Moshe, this this stiff-necked, stubborn people. I'm just saying, uh... But let him die with some hope. I don't know. Well, that's not (laughs) a little much, right? (laughs) Well, I think Mark put his finger on it. Like, if there is hope, well... Can you imagine, as you get older, for God to say, by the way, after you're gone, your children and your grandchildren are going to mess up and be terrible. That would Ben be Allen wants to say something. They get to read. It doesn't this speak to how, just how incredibly close the relationship between God and Moses is more than God has with any other human that he's able to, 
God, that God is able to, 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 God's not thinking about Moses's feelings. They're just, they're partners. They are, they are, they are advisor and, and, you know, chief of staff and, and, you know, president, right? I mean, it, it's a, it's a, it's such a close relationship that he's not thinking about his feelings. He's thinking about their, about how deeply committed Moses is to the cause, how he spent his whole life on this and he's going to work on it till his dying day. And so to th- he needs to think about and anticipate. It's part of the whole deal. They're, they're, this is a succession plan, right? They're talking about passing on the torch to Joshua, and so they, they're they're just hashing over everything. And um, and Moses is, knows that he needs to to prepare for for what's to come. But Moshe doesn't have to prepare for what's to come. Moshe just needs to appoint a successor. He doesn't have to be told your successor. It's all going to fail when they make it into the land. What I hear you saying is. That, but it's such a special thing that God is, that Moshe's listening to God kind of sharing at the deepest levels what's going to happen, right? And so, yeah, that, does that say how super close and super tight they are? Yeah. Is it very loving and responsible of God? Uh, this year? That's just not their, that's, I, that they don't have that kind of, I, you know, it's not, they have a working relationship that is so deep. And I guess, uh, I, I suppose God's just sort of laying out, I guess, God's concerns about where things may go. And I think hoping that Moses will, will, will take, we, we, as, as, as he's figuring out the succession plan, we'll be, we'll be thinking about this and preparing Joshua and trying to put institutions in place and trying to ensure that there's going to be some, some, some protections that will, that will outcome. He dies right after this. Ben, he dies. Okay. All right. Well, maybe. Yeah. Well, this is the burden of a public servant. Emma Linda, speak. Uh, I, I like separating it out and, and switching between thinking about it in the context of the narrative and thinking about it from an academic perspective. Uh, what did the Deuteronomist mean for us? And, I think that knowing that your God assumes and expects and already knows that you're going to mess it up, it can be read as, as a condemnation or permission to fail. Like it, it is okay. We already know that we're going to screw up and thinking Beautiful. about Rosh Hashanah coming up, like we're going to screw it up and we return. We come Beautiful. back to the path. Beautiful. So let's look at that. As many times as it takes. Let, let's look at an explanation that takes us there. And Melinda, thank you for uh, opening that door. So we're going to go to um, Rabbi Erin Lieb Smokler and her piece uh, on this parsha. Uh, you, ha- I didn't copy it for you. So just look at the screen or just listen. Um, so the the major impediment to taking risks in life is the little voice that tells us to be afraid, rather than have fun falling. Moshe says, do not be afraid, three times in this short Parsha. He knows fear is our natural response to change, to the death of our leader, and to moving forward into unknown territory. He knows we will need ample courage to go forth. Perhaps by having us stare our inevitable inevitable failure in the face so that we can come to terms with it and make peace with it, he's trying to ease the overwhelming fear of setting out on the journey in the first place. Peter Bregman, in the article for the Harvard Business Review, uses the metaphor of surfing when describing what it might be like to accept failure as a main feature of living a full life. 
he writes of the different surfers that he saw at this, you know, professional level surfing event. What really struck me, though, was what they had in common. No matter how good, how experienced, how graceful they were on the wave, every surfer ended their ride in precisely the same way, by falling. Some had fun with their fall, while others tried desperately to avoid it. And not all falls were failures. Some fell into the water only when their wave fizzled and their ride ended. The only difference between a failure and a fizzle was the element of surprise. In all cases, the surfer ends up in the water, to Melinda's point. There's no other possible way to wrap up a ride. Except if you're wise like some of us who stay on the beach, (laughs) reading our book, watching those folks out there who choose to surf. Okay. Bregman argues that our fear of failure is really a fear of the unpleasant feelings that surround the failure, the stories we attach to ourselves. I am a loser. I am unworthy. The feeling of not getting what we wanted, the shame of being vulnerable and exposed. The catch in trying to avoid these feelings, however, is that the fear doesn't really protect us from them. As Bregman says, it simply subjects us to them for an agonizingly long time. The only way to conquer failure, he writes, is to fail and to realize that it did not kill you. As we become increasingly familiar and intimate with the feelings on the other side of risk and failure, it becomes much more possible to have fun falling. Moses's prophecy, after all, does not end with our failure. It is there. It is real and painful, but it is not the end of the story. Moshe's third message to us, and uh, here she quotes uh, chapter 31, verse 21, Um, This song will bear witness against them, for it will not be forgotten from the mouth of their offspring. Rashi argues that this line is a ray of light in the otherwise dark prophecy. Rashi writes, this is a promise to Israel that the Torah will never be entirely forgotten by their offspring. In the darkest of times when we're far away from happiness, joy, or connection, God and Moses tell us that there is an ancient melody buried in our bones, our mouths, and our hearts. This song bears witness to who we really are. No matter how many times we fail, the future iterations of us, our offspring, will remember. We can always dig deep to hear that melody. We can always come home. This is the message for this time of year and perhaps one of the central themes of the entire Torah. We have a connection with God and the universe, and at some point we become afraid or distracted and wander away. We forget. We fail. We suffer. And then hopefully at some point we return. We wake up and remember who we really are and try again. In this cycle, we learn more about our original connection. Our bond is strengthened and our love is deepened. We cannot skip any of the steps. We can only try and see where we are in the journey. Thank you, Rabbi Smokler, for saving us there from uh, what could be hard. Because I have a problem with the anthropomorphizing of God as a whole, I see that these stories have so much more meaning than God as a person. Moses and God speaking to each other as equals. The stories transcend the anthropomorphizing of God, and they have to to have meaning for me. Yeah, for sure. Um, Alex says, how else are we to learn 
reminds me of Brene Brown rising strong. Like, so Brene Brown, all of her work is about, um, there is no strength without vulnerability. Nobody who's ever achieved anything was able to do that without first being willing to be vulnerable and to fail. Like, and so all of her stuff about shame is about vulnerability. All of her work is around shame and, um, and the power of vulnerability that, that all strength ultimately comes from the willingness to be vulnerable. Yeah, there's also a concept of waiting hope, which is waiting for a miracle. There was a miracle when they came out of Egypt, right? The, the 10 plagues. There was a miracle at the Red Sea. It was hopeless, right? The Egyptians were right behind them and they were hopeless. So the, uh, but it happened. The miracle happened. And so there's hope for a miracle. In all of these things. And so Micha Goodman argues that, that Josiah, when Pharaoh wants to cut across Israel and Pharaoh says to Josiah's people, don't worry, I'm not here for you. I'm going after those other guys, but I got to go through Judah to get there. So just stand down. I'm not coming for you. And Josiah, who believes He's the one, right? That this is his, his revolution, his religious revolution. He believes there's going to be a miracle. He knows God is all powerful. God would never let God's house fall. And so Josiah says to Pharaoh, no, you're not coming through Judah. God will rescue. God will take care of us. God who brought us out of Egypt will once again defeat Pharaoh. And Josiah takes on Pharaoh and is killed. So. And then there, and then we saw kind of the mess that happens, you know, after that with succession. So to your point, Micha Goodman says one of the lessons is religion and, and true believing in miracles can infantilize you to a place where you don't act. And the lesson of Josiah and the lesson of the failure of Josiah is waiting for a miracle. When we're supposed to be on our feet using our brains and saying, well, of course you can come through Judah. If you're not here to make a problem for us, by all means, go get them, Tiger. Right? But Josiah is a holy roller and he believes, no, God will, God will defeat Pharaoh again and, and, and becomes infantilized and, and, and arrogant in the face, right? Of what, what reality dictate just becomes a, a religious fanatic and it gets him killed and the and and the kingdom falls we we know that that's what ultimately happens what are you saying lisa right right that right and and so right so the lesson is listen to the teachings listen to the law and apply it and do stuff don't don't sit around thinking, oh, God will take care of it, right? That that what that gets you is the temple destroyed. We're all going to fall down, and we need to get up. Fall down, get up. As always, succinctly put, Mark Edelstein. Thank you. Isn't there uh, at at the sea? Doesn't uh, Moses is praying, and God say to Moses, "Stop praying and get moving." That is in the midrash. No, it doesn't say that in Torah. In Torah, God says, why do you cry out to me? Tell the people to move forward. Okay. The interpretation of the rabbis is, where does it say that Moshe is crying out to God? It doesn't. It just says, God says, Lama tzaka, why are you, why are you crying out to me? Tell the people to move forward. Meaning, what are you 
do. I can't do anything till y'all take some steps into the water. Power corrupts absolutely. The addiction to power, this is also an addiction to a, a magic belief. Yes. Yes. If you believe God's going to do it for you, you are just as dangerous to the whole enterprise as the folks who don't believe there's a God and who don't believe that therefore there's any, you know, meaning to any of this. Cause if it's not, if people wrote the, right. So both are equally dangerous. And then these, these teachings come to tell us that both are equally dangerous. Chazak ve'amatz, be strong and resolute and figure it out, right? How to create this society that Torah commands you to create. Figure it out. I've given you the instruction. It's never meant to be a freedom just so you get to be free. That's not the point. You are not free. You are free to create a society of justice and equity and inclusion and democracy and yeah, th- that's what you're free to do because that's what's right. You're not free to do anything you want. That's Nazi Germany. You're not free to do anything you want. You're free to build a community based on the laws of equity and inclusion and compassion and making sure the oppressed are lifted up and the hungry are fed. That's what you're free to do because that's what's right. If And if you do something other than that, which you are free to do, because you are actually free, but know, know the consequences, you're on probation. We'll see. I'm trusting you. We'll see how you do. And, like, I think the reason these texts don't go away and the power of them don't go away is because as long as there are human beings trying to live together in something we call society, you're going to have these challenges. You're going to have people who have more and people who have less, both by merit and by just disasters happening to people. It's just how it goes. So your job is to figure out how to create a society where the folks who have less are that there's a minimum standard below which they don't fall or you don't get to keep what you have. You don't deserve it. If you don't make sure that you're creating a society that protects and holds and lifts those at the bottom, that and the consequences of you tilting it too too far are dire. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website www.ourki.org